Hi guys, welcome to the Art of Acquisitions podcast. Here we discuss how you can create cash flow and grow your wealth with acquisitions. We have a great guest lineup, including Craig. Craig bought two businesses with 10 million in sales, no money down. And Alan, Alan has led multiple deals ranging in value from 1 million to 9 billion. Yes, that was right, 1 million to 9 billion. Art of Acquisitions, simply the fastest strategy to create cash flow and grow your wealth. Welcome to Dan Taylor of Taylor Capital. Thank you for sharing some of your time with myself and our listeners today, Dan. How are you doing? Where are you talking to us from? I'm awesome. Coming in from Kilmacombe, Scotland. Uh, still up in here. It's beautiful snow outside, about four inches. Absolutely gorgeous. And uh, yeah, excited to be here. Always excited to be on your show, buddy. Uh, I love it when great minds get together. Great. Thanks, Dan. And just to give us a sense of life for you right now, I, I love to kind of give listeners a snapshot of where... Um, people are right now, and then we can go back and dig into how you actually got there. So maybe you could just give us a, an idea of, well, firstly, what Taylor Capital is, and also maybe just what a typical day-to-day is for you. Right. Well, Taylor Capital is a club that we set up initially to help people uh, get into commercial property, understand the language, the strategies, the structures, tax structures, tax wrappers, and every, all the beautiful thing that is commercial property. And um, we started off with that and we've kind of morphed, evolved into um, a lot of people at the end of 2020 or something uh, came to me and they said, love the strategies, love how you can really force capital appreciation. But I'm going to be honest with myself, I've, I've been sensible enough to take this pension under my own control and I've created a SaaS. It's now under my control, but I don't have the time to do it. So can you help me out, Dan? Can we piggyback on some of your deals? And it got me thinking. I thought, you know what? Why not? And and then beginning in 2021, we started developing our own kind of closed doors club members crowdfunding platform. And um, and I thought, you know, how hard can it be? <laughs> <laughs> and, and as usual, you know, never underestimate how wrong you can be. And it, was, it was hard. It did take longer than expected. It cost a hell of a lot more money than expected. Don't do this at home. <laughs> <laughs> But needless to say, we launched in uh, August and we did our first raise, which is absolutely fantastic. And if there's any investors out there listening, thank you very much. Uh, it was awesome and it always will be awesome working with you. We raised uh, over a seven-figure sum on our first raise for a property that cost $5.1 million. Now, the GDV on that property is uh, $14 million. Um, and the great thing about that property is cash flow day one. Got two tenants in Poundland CX paying £410,000 a year. Uh, and then we've got the three floors upstairs that are kind of vacant and um, and fully now stripped out. But we're hoping to put 25 apartments in there. Uh, we've got planning for the existing upstairs for apartments. And we're going for another floor on top as well. Hopefully, fingers crossed. Touch wood. Um, so in terms of the club, where it's morphed into, um, our club members helped raise the money to get that deal of the line. And, uh, and now we're going into helping our club members uh, really help their SaaS pension take a quantum leap through, um, I suppose, diversification. So we are going to help them really grow uh, their SaaS pension through the acquisitions or investing in acquisitions of businesses and commercial property, and hopefully where they both come in the same pie. Yeah, and that's really... I guess that that's where your experience over the years, because Dan, we've known each other now for a couple of years. 
I've been following you for a little bit longer. I, I, you've been um, so um, good at sharing information about commercial property. And your background is a bit of a mix, isn't it? It's not just about commercial. It's also that business acquisition bit. So could you maybe just take us back then? What, where did those two join together? And when did you sort of do that first commercial deal? Was it a simple deal or was there some business involved in that too? Is there a simple deal? <laughs> no, is there a simple deal? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. My goodness, that last one we did on the 5th of November. Oh, my goodness. Um, the universe was testing everything I had. On the <laughs> at the run-up to completion, we had a, a million pound of VAT issue right at the last minute.com, literally three weeks ago. Uh, and then a £50,000 stamp duty on the £1 million. Of course, yeah. That we had to use some restructuring, a group restructuring to accommodate that so we didn't pay the million pounds nor the 50K of uh, SDLT. Now, these things come at you and you have to be prepared for these things. Uh, fortunately, I must have been dropped as a kid, but I love challenges. Uh, I love providing solutions, you know, creative solutions to challenges kind of thing. And um, when, when that was going on, I must admit, it was probably a little bit too much. I was up at half past three in the morning with these ideas that you can't get out of your head and I had to scribble them down straight away. Yeah. But, uh, sorry to digress. Coming back to the first deal, um, just before first deal, I, I kind of started out in life kind of failing forward. We did a, a number of what you call uh, lessons uh, in terms of businesses, set up a restaurant, set up a clothes shop, set up something else. And in fact, one of them, Ted Baker. Does anybody know Ted Baker? Have you heard of him? Ted yeah. Baker. Well, I was the first person to go down to see Ray Kelvin, the founder of Ted Baker in London, and convince him into setting up a franchise, me being the franchisee, in the West End of Edinburgh. Now, at the time, I was sitting in a little six-foot by four-foot donut kiosk, my first ever business. Yeah, so six-foot <laughs> I'm sitting in there in a quiet time, reading this GQ magazine, and there's an advert in there, take care of Ted. They're looking for wholesalers, not franchisees. But I thought, I, I love Ted Baker. I could be a franchisee. Went down to, got on my bike. I have my best Ted Baker shirt on. And I strolled into Ray Kelvin's office. And I managed to talk him into, you know, setting up a franchise with me being the first franchisee in Edinburgh. So what can go wrong? Edinburgh, Ted Baker. The only variable in the whole mix was Dan Taylor. <laughs> <laughs> And I, I managed to, uh, you know, successfully make that fail. And, uh, and then another business after that and another business. To the point where we got back to, um, I suppose, what I know best is property. And we, I, I kind of did a, a, a deal in 1995. It was the first. I mean, did other deals before this, property, smaller things, commercial to resi and whatnot. But this is our first one that kind of opened my eyes. And it was, uh, it was a distressed property in Edinburgh, Toll Cross, Home Street. And um, basically, the, 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 the power had been pulled, the, the shards were down, somebody had done a midnight flip kind of thing. So I, we did a search, found out it was an Allied Irish Bank, I had the, the security. Again, I, on my bike, knocked on the door, back in the days when you can just speak to the bank manager. And, and I said, look, you've got an issue up here. You're probably not even aware of it yet, but um, why don't you bring up the loan docs and see what's outstanding? Because he's, he's not there anymore. Do some DD and phone me back if you whatever. So a week later, he calls back. And we're sitting in front. He's got the computer up, bringing up. Okay, we've got 100 and um, whatever. I've got 114 outstanding on this. Uh, can you clear the whole lot? I says, oh, not only the whole lot, I'll pay your legal fees as well. How's that? And he, he's just, eyes were amazed, you know. So we'll give him 117K for this 700 square foot freehold property. 
And two and a half years later, we sold that for three quarters of a million, which is quite nice. Thank you very much. <laughs> and, and we actually sold it. So we crystallized that capital event. Yeah. We didn't pay any tax on it. That's a whole nother story. Yep. But, but, you know, the, you know, went from 117, probably 150 actually after we did the refer 150 to 750. So that opened my eyes into, because it was a business and it was a property. Yeah. We put a business in there. The business was a gaming center. And, you know, if you imagine a 46-year-old female shopper is the average customer playing the puggies, the yep. or small machines. And so the business was doing like 150,000 profit. We had the property and we sold them both in the one package. Now, later on, about a year later, I then learned about a sale and lease back and how, how stupid I'd be. <laughs> <laughs> Not holding on and yeah. Well, I had never done a lease and then sold the business and then sold the property. And I probably lost about a quarter million pounds not knowing that one little nugget, which is incredible. And this is how powerful commercial is that, you know, little nuggets can make you significant sums uh, for very little effort. Like my best sale on lease back, this is not to boast or anything. This is just to give you a, a, an insider's view of what you can do with a sale on lease back. We had a group. I'll come on to that in a second. So we did this little project, 700 square foot, but size of a two-bed flat, sold it for three quarters. And then on July uh, the 4th, 1997, we started our first, you know, foray into business acquisitions, like properly into business acquisitions. We've done them before, but this was a, a premeditated roll-up strategy. And um, so the first one was July the 4th, 97. It's a lease option. Why is it a lease option? Because we never had enough capital because we hadn't sold the other property yet. It was still in transition of being sold. So this was uh, 880,000 pounds, this property. Um, we didn't have 80,000 pounds. The bank wouldn't give us 880, uh, despite being a big property and it was cash flowing um, because the owners were maybe not showing on the books exactly what was coming in, shall we say. So it was hard to finance things like that. So we put um, 100,000 pounds down, uh, got the credit cards out to pay the balance of the £80,000 and then with a, a lease option for three years on 700 k for the property. Yeah, That business then proceeded to make £250,000 a year and easily funded the property quite you know, very, very easily. So after that, we kind of bought some more properties over from that point to 2005-ish or something. And eventually we had 30 units um, up and down the UK. Um, and we got to about 21.4 million value. Yeah, 2.7 million yep. EBITDA or profit, 21.4 million debt. No, 21.4 million value, about 50 million of debt, roughly. This leads on and about 253 staff, 30 shops up and down the UK, from the South Coast to Dundee, uh, little, little pockets. So that brings on to the, uh, the sale lease back quite nicely, because we're at 21.4 value. And then without buying any more property, without doing any more acquisitions at all, we went from 21.4 to 29.8 by doing a sale and lease back of our properties into one vehicle and our business into another vehicle and reinforcing the two and connect them to with a long-term lease, a contract. Um, so that, that, that was quite an important point. I said this, I'll say it again. We went from 21.4 million in value to 29.8 million in value just by doing a sale and lease by, by uh, manipulating something called a cap rate, which is how you value commercial property, which is pretty nuts, isn't it? 
So yep. they're, all, they're all in one pot. The business and the commercial real estate is in one pot. We basically did that, put the commercial real estate into another pot, another company, and kept the businesses here and had long-term leases and the business paid the rent of about 850000 to, no, it was 1.1 million, sorry, to um, the commercial real estate holder, which is a company owned by us. And our plan was then to sell the businesses. Yeah. We'd already increased the value by 8.4 to 21 to 30 million, but we wanted to increase that further by doing one thing, selling the businesses to a PLC and our cap rate would come down and our cap rate is the reverse of value. So our value would go up even more. And that was the game plan then. So that's kind of how we kind of got into in our kind of journey into business buying. And then um, we actually got into, uh, you never believe this, but we got into a contract to sell the businesses to a PLC. And in fact, we went to market. We didn't, we were, we're pretending to go to market, um, but we only wanted one person on the hook for the leases, which was a PLC, the only PLC in the game, because that 30 million would go to 40 million because the strength of that tenant, now this is intrinsic to boxing a brand, the strength of that tenant was significantly more than we were as a company, despite having a you know, 10 million plus turnover. Yeah. Um, so despite us being 30 million, they would have pushed our value in the real estate arm really, really high. So our businesses would have been sold to them, increasing the commercial property value. And then we sold, we were, the plan was to sell the commercial property. But you know yourself, Jerry, man plans and God laughs. <laughs>, <laughs> what happened to the economy? <laughs> and uh, we're, we're on a completion day after a year and a half of nonsense, you know, legal fees and all this kind of stuff. And we're on a completion day, April 2009. Yep. Completion day is after credit sanction, second credit sanction, 100 grand PwC report for under, you know, insurance for the bank, basically. And um, we weren't aware of this macroeconomic event happening. It wasn't the, the GFC, the, the financial crisis, we're aware of that, obviously. It was this, um, uh, the bank at the time were trying to get a £5 billion promissory note from an offshore fund, uh, a wealthy family, and so they didn't have to do what RBS did in Northern Rock and get you know government yep. kind of help kind of thing. Why? Defend director's bonuses. <laughs> Bankers greed. Who loves the bank, eh? <laughs> So on the date of completion, everything signed off. And it started at 6 o'clock in the morning. And at half past four, um, all of those 11 lawyers around the room. And, and I said, look, are we finally there? Are we done? Are you sure? You've checked everything. He says, Dan, they cannot get out even if they try to get out. I said, so why are we not corking the champagne right now? Because I'm on the beach. You know, I'm booking a flight. <laughs> So, and they said, well, we're just waiting for this one uh, A4 bit of paper from the bank, final release of grant of security to release this. The businesses to the PLC, we get the money in, pay down the debt, happy days, we're off, you know, off to the races kind of thing. And um, and that was at half four. I said, well, obviously, is anybody phoning the bank? Is it, and I said, I'll phone the bank right now. So we've got the bank on, on speakerphone and uh, so everybody could hear. And the bank said, well, um, I can't speak right now. I said, well, we've got a PLC in the hook. They probably spent quarter million legal fees. I said, the deal's done. You just need to send through the A4 bit of paper. He says, I'll call you back half past 11 at night. He phones back. 
you know, literally seven hours later, we're still all in the team in the, the conference room. Oh. And you, can, you can imagine the fees, you know, yep. um, they were horrendous and Domino's pizzas coming in and all this kind of stuff. And uh, at half past 11 at night, the banker called me back. He says, Dan, we can't allow the deal to proceed. I said, the deal is done. Um, it, the deal's done. It's done. You just need to send this final, you know, A4 bit of paper with your signature on it. It's done. He says, we can't allow it to proceed. You know, they wouldn't tell us why, they wouldn't tell us anything else. And from that point on, um, they then forced me to sell the assets at pence on the pound, completely hung me over, sold the assets at pence on the pound. And, uh, and we still work with the bank, even though we're getting completely humped, um, because you've always got to make the best of a bad situation. You know, there's always a silver lining, always put your best foot forward, always come from a point of ethics, always come from a point of a moral high ground. And there'll always be something there at the end of the rainbow for you. And for me, it was buying a few assets back from the bank at pence on the pound for myself. And it was for me of, it changed my deal DNA from that point going on. Complete and utter mistrust for the bank, hate bankers, bankers greed, institutional raping and pillaging, VCs, PAs, didn't want to talk to them anymore at all. And, but it, it was the biggest business gift I've ever had in my life, which is kind of weird to say. And the gift was this, that I was that par paranoid about banks and leverage. And, you know, I thought it was a sensible level of debt and they could completely steal your whole business off you. That from that point on, I said to myself, number one, I don't want 253 staff. <laughs> number two, I want an easy life. Number three, I want hassle-free, secure long-term income. And number four, I want someone else to be put in front of, in between me and the customer. Because whoever's customer facing has a recapitalization every seven or eight years to refresh their business, yeah? So let's ditch the CapEx. Let's basically um, get rid of customers. Let's get rid of staff and let's create something. How can I create something? What would that, you know, what would that look like? If it was easy, what would it look like? What does great look like for all those component parts to come together? And I came up with this thing about buying businesses and boxing a brand. So buying a business in decline, yeah, you can buy for pencil and pound. So you can buy a business that's trading that owns its underlying commercial property at, at ridiculous low levels and then look for the demand in the area, the alternative use, and put that alternative use in the box. Now, that could be a number of things, one of which we've done um, is a boxing a brand kind of thing. It's not quite. It's like a development, but it's a, it was a trading business. It was on the market for offers over £340,000. And you never believe it, but we managed to buy it for 120K. It's 13,000 square foot commercial. And what it's going to be is a 50 million GDV, 150 purpose-built student studios. And the impact of the streetscape, the economy, the local regeneration is going to be incredible as a result of it. And that's, that's one, that's maybe, if you're just starting out, it's maybe not your first one. But everyone can buy 120,000 pound commercial property. The art is getting it from offers over 340 down to 120. Yeah. And there was a number of different strategies to do that. But what we ended with up with is a lease option. So a lease is just an agreement between a party for a length of term to pay some rent, or there could be a rent free period in that term. And during that period, there's an option to take up our call option on the property that you want to buy at any point in time. Now, the art is getting the contract right so that the call option can be disputed. It's recorded on the title. 
and um, even it goes down to our heritable successors. And on top of that, the price for the properties agreed at the outset, not negotiated down the road. Um, all these things culminate in, you know, what you can call the art of the deal, I suppose, um, which is fun. And, you know, I love it. It's great. And, and really that, that, that kind of issue I had with the bank, um, that I, I thank them because they give me a, an incredible gift, which is this ability to now look at deals from a very creative perspective to really force capital appreciation for one reason. So I'm kind of very, very lowly geared. So they don't have their hands yep. in their pockets yeah. in the future. You know? Great. Dan, that's a terrific um intro to what you've been doing. And if I can just summarize, right, just going back, basically the first property was in, incorporate a trading business. And you built up that trading business by acquiring other ones. Yeah. Businesses that were operating in units. And the model really there was that those businesses owned their property. They weren't leasing them. They owned the property. They were either trading well or not. You built up a group and the value just for listeners, the value came from, or the increase in value came from effectively separating out the trading business, the day-to-day operations sat in the operating company. And then at least these properties from the holding company that was holding onto the properties. Yeah. Opco, Propco, which really helped leverage up the value. Yeah, then more, the, most importantly, sorry to interrupt, but yeah. it's doing that before you sell. Yeah, so absolutely. You, yeah. So then the next trick. Yeah. It's landlords yeah, so, leases. So from a landlord's perspective, what is the best lease you can put in place? Not from a, business owners. Absolutely. And you, because you own both entities, you can engineer that to be as favorable as, as you need it to be. But then of course, the extra little layer you added in there was that if you can sell the operating business to a very well-known, well-structured operating business, it will have an impact straight away on the value of the properties because the covenant strength, not because they're paying more rent, but just because the new operating companies perceived as even stronger than the previous one, and therefore investors feel more comfortable with that. So they're willing to pay more, which is then, as you say, is the reason to then, right, okay, we've done all the steps. Now we're ready to sell the actual property element. And then, of course, there was the challenge with the bank and all great plans. But nevertheless, that's the story, isn't it? And then so what you're talking about with the box and the brand is, is very similar, isn't it? It's basically buying operating businesses that have the asset. They have to have the asset. There's no point buying something that's leased or not necessarily straightforward as that anyway. And then taking that operating business and either improving that operating business or, and we've got into the subject I really want to get into, finding a brand that's going to take on that premises and then utilizing that second part we spoke about earlier on, which is now you've got a really strong covenant. Now the value of the underlying asset, the property, has gone up significantly. And can I just ask one question? Something that was in the back of my mind, way back at the start, we were talking about that first one, it was 115, went up 750. If the if the trading element of the business wasn't there, what would you have valued that property on its own as at that point of um, the revaluation? Yeah, you go back to commercial uh, valuation basics, which is what would it rent for in a, in a, a willing, yeah. willing seller kind of thing. And at, at the time, probably 30K rent, and you probably get a 10 cap. So on a good day, 300K, but more, probably two to, 250 would be a sensible valuation. 
Yeah. So if so if a so if a commercial investor, purely commercial investor, not active, not doing any trading, the building has still gone up by two, maybe three times in value from what you've bought it yeah. because of that have, occupant. Yeah, and you don't have to buy trading businesses either. We've bought vacant property, which is not my preferred option because there's no cash flow kind of day one. I mean, yeah. it is a great one to do. We've done it to great effect, to be honest. Uh, one um, was not just vacant; it was dilapidated. Um, you know, it was like a it was ugly, it was chunky, uh, and, and it, from a certain viewpoint, that's beautiful to me, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Yeah. yeah. Um, it really was. And uh, But I seen something else there, uh, completely different. And this one, I bid initially. I never got it. Somebody else got it. Um, and it scared me how little they paid compared to what I bid, which, you know, there's another story for another day. <laughs> but eventually he never caught with a game plan, i.e. a commercially viable game plan. He was in London and Belize. His, um, his QS, his architect, and his, his guys up here were coming up with game plans. And in the course of coming up with that game plan, they managed to burn through £47,000 in professional fees of his money. You know, so he managed to get the thing for, I think it was 100 k and he burned through 147,000 pounds of professional fees. So on the phone, literally in five minutes, I said, I'll give you all your money back, 147K uh, cash. I, I can do it as fast as you want. Next week, the week after, whatever. I don't need any DD. I've already done the title searches. And he says, cool. Um, so we did a deal. I bought it for cash quick. And then, uh, and you know, but in this, I'll stress this. What I'm about to tell you next, no, nobody should ever do this. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> at the time I did this, I never had a game plan, but I knew the patch like the back of my hand. Yeah. So I kind of knew I would come up with a game plan um, as I've never not come up with a game plan so far. And, you know, big man willing, you'll continue to help me. But this one, I went in kind of, I went in, went upstairs, nearly fell through the first floor into the bar downstairs. You know, this is how bad it was. Um, so from word go, I'm thinking it's demolition and restart, you know. Um, but at the time, I just retired on 26th of March 2016. And I just couldn't be bothered with the development. I just wanted to chill out and really think about the bigger game plan. What am I doing going forward? So I came up with this. It was boxing a brand plus also boxing a developer. I call it the boomerang bob. Um, and it's a really <laughs> And it's kind of a way of doing developments without being involved the builder. Yeah. So I seen uh, a brand new kind of four story building there. And I seen social affordable apartments and a beautiful building, the likes of which have never been seen before and two commercial units on the ground floor. And I kind of pictured this. I had a, the architect sketch it up, what I was talking about. And then I kind of then interviewed six housing associations. And I said, would you like to have a flagship on the trunk road on the west of Scotland to portray, give investors an insight to what you do? You know, and I, I pitched this kind of vision of what they could achieve here to elevate what affordable housing could be in the future and to really put their flag on that mountain to say, this is us, we're moving forward kind of thing. You know, so we did this. We then got down to one person. And remember, this is a development without being Bob the Builder. So I came up with this game plan. We got the planning permission. We secured a contract from the uh, housing association. And this is the boomerang part. We sold the contract to them on a boomerang basis where they had to demolish, build, finance, take all the risk and give 
the whole thing back to us, just the commercial units. They kept the upstairs. They get to do their flagship product. We kept the two commercial units downstairs um, without getting involved, um, without financing, without any of that kind of nonsense. Because remember, I just retired and I just didn't want to get involved in a day-to-day project again. Um, and, you know, in terms of the numbers, yes, we made some money at the front end. I think um, we bought it for 147, sold it to them for 167 or something, negligible. But, um, you know, what's the true cost? What's the net cost at the end when it all washes out? Per commercial property, is £25,000. With no risk, no financing, no building, no D&B contracts, none of that kind of stuff. And everybody in Largs thinks I did the whole thing. I suppose I did do it. I engineered the whole thing and put the whole strategy into place and then facilitated somebody else to do it. So in these kind of things, don't think you have to be the builder. Never think you have to take on all the risk. I remember when I had that experience with the banks, I now come from a point of view of how do I de-risk everything? Yeah, so I'm coming from a point of view, how do I, what are the, what are the risks? Identify the risks. How do we silo each risk, identify it, mitigate it, risk, insure against it. I'm Mr. Paranoia on risks, and I like to bake them all down and turn them into a fixed kind of situation as much as possible. Now, when the risk is on their side, imagine this, imagine they're late, you know, which could be an issue, might not be an issue. It wasn't an issue for me, but in the contract, if they were late, I was to be paid a thousand pounds a week, which is quite nice. Um, Now I didn't, uh, when they were late and they were quite significantly late, uh, I didn't, you know, I didn't demand that. I'm more about, you know, long-term relationships and we just come up with a deal uh, that worked as, you know, worked for both of us at the end. But the key thing is that was 147,000 pounds. Anybody could have bought that. Anybody listening to this podcast right now could finance that or find one investor to finance that and do the deal together. You have to be the kind of uh, the conductor or the imagineer of the strategy of the deal and, and then bring in an investor if you need to on your first deal. And if you haven't done a development before, come you know, do this kind of strategy where you're not being involved in the builder, somebody else's. And then you know, you've, got, you've got some experience under your belt. So that was 147,000. And it's worth, well, if they can possession, get this, it cost me net 25,000 each, so 50,000 pounds because it's two units, and VP is worth 510, yeah? Now, the one I told you about before is 120,000 pounds. Anybody listening to this podcast right now could buy one of those kind of projects, and it was a trading business, yeah? Now, the GDV on that is going to be 15 million, and the profit is about 5 million. And I don't even need to build it to make the profit. And see, I, I did not build it. Then maybe the profit is three and a half or something because you've got to leave some food on the table for the next guy. Yeah. So you can be the conductor and the imagineer of deals and not get your feet wet kind of thing. And what, what are the years of those deals? Uh, well, they don't happen overnight. Um, the, the one at 120,000, we took our first initial lease option on September 2012. Mm-hmm. We took up the option to buy and, and when I, I kind of retired, 26th of March, 2016, uh, because when I bought, I also did a, man, a facility to management buyout for the manager to buy the business. So I, I wasn't left running the business. Yeah. And I had a lease in place. And so that was 216. We've just been in for planning for the 150 PBSA, you know, purpose-built student studios. Why? Because it's right next door to the university and it's right next door to the student's union. Uh, and it will always be there. Nobody will trump that location. It's just when I seen that, I seen student accommodation 
and nobody else for some reason seen that. They just seen a downtrodden, dilapidated business that's going nowhere. And I just think, holy shit, it's right next door to the university. Um, but I then tracked the occupancy levels of the housing for the university over the years. And when it got to the appropriate level, 87%, that's when I started making a, you know, inroads into meeting all the university people, the housing people, the planners and all this kind of thing. I wasn't in a rush. Why wasn't I in a rush? Because I had something that cost me 120 grand. It was bringing in 24,000 pound rent. I'm getting 20% yield while I am patiently waiting for the, the occupancy levels to get the right level. In terms of the other one at 147, that was, um, where, when was that? We bought that back about, it was in the lockdown, so 2020. Yep. Yeah. And um, we're talking to a national hot food operator just now about going in there. Right. Okay. So for those listening, some, some, some may feel that's a lot of spinning plates and a lot of, um, a, a, not cloudy, but just a difficult maze to work your way through. But I think it's really important to, to stress that when you've gone into those deals, Dan, they work from day one. Yeah. And the long-term potential was one possible exit. So I, I, if I may, um, maybe take more words out of your mouth, but these deals, they need to work day one. And then you've got these multiple exits or potentials for that deal, but they don't... You, they don't always happen overnight. They take time. And this game is not for overnight, or you could make some money overnight, but long-term, that's where the real wealth comes from. But you don't have to have absolutely the perfect exit lined up. You need to have several yeah. ideas on exit, but it needs to work day one to mitigate the risk. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. That 120, 20% return day one. Yeah. I, I'm doing nothing, literally nothing. I'm I, 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 do, I organize insurance once a year. That's it. Yeah. You know, in the 147, you know, obviously that was a little bit more involved because I had to come up with a strategy, then interview six housing associations, get a contract and all that kind of stuff. But once it's passed on to them, then it's a year and a half of build. I'm not involved. Just bring it back or get my architect to inspect it. And then, you know, the, yeah. uh, we take over. Um, and it was really, really easy. But yeah, those have been very long-term deals. One of them cash flow day one. The other one I, I just bought for cash because it was no, it was vacant. It was no no cash flow. But there are deals that are very very quick wins, um, and a quick win in commercial is probably a year. Yes, you know, you know it's not going to happen overnight. The only ones that happen overnight that you can have an immediate effect on your cash flow and your wealth are buying businesses or that own their commercial property that are profitable. You know, and then, you know, like, for example, remember the roll up we talked about? Yeah. Yeah. We started July the 4th, 1997, with the first lease option. Um, on May 2005, we did an acquisition for 12 and a quarter million pounds. Um, now, that was 1.8 million EBITDA. So the day we buy, yeah, we, yeah. we had no money into that deal. On the day of completion, we never put money in. And we had an extra million pound in the cat in the account. That's the way I structured the finances. Yeah. And we've got an extra 1.8 million EBITDA hitting our account, you know, like 150,000 a month extra, and all the commercial property that goes with that. So that that was a massive jump in cash flow and a massive jump in wealth. 
Yeah. And then, and then obviously life is like snakes and ladders, <laughs> but over time you learn about these things and it's probably the best thing ever because from my experience now, I learned, you know, you silo things, you, you start to protect assets. Uh, and then you start thinking about, you know, depending where you are in your journey, um, structuring, you know, potentially a holding company, potentially uh, an LP management company that does all the liability stuff, potentially a SaaS pension to hive off if you have uh, profits and also excess cash. If you've only got profits, no excess cash, no point even thinking about one of them just now. Um, but then after that, you start thinking about a trust. What kind of trust? And trusts come in all different shapes and sizes. And the biggest issue with a trust is they've got a 10-year tax charge. But there's two trusts that don't have a 10-year tax charge. And it's at some point it's worth you thinking about these things because uh, unfortunately a lot of people think about when they're too close to the end. And if you start putting these things together too close to the end, um, that'll still crystallize a tax chart. You know, you have to be thinking from a point of view of you're protecting the assets. You're not just trying to, <laughs> you know, sidestep the tax man, unfortunately. Yeah. So, let's, let's dive a little bit more into boxing the brand. So if somebody is looking at a unit and they think, well, okay, there's a, let's say a, a lower quality covenant in there. It's a single operator in a building that's maybe not operating very well, or indeed it's vacant. How do you go about working out what brands are looking for space and what actually, um, what their criteria is? So for instance, um, Dan, you mentioned they're a hot food national chain, hot food. Who who else would you work with on a national basis? And how do you find out the information on what it is that they're looking for? Um, that's an awesome question. And, uh, you know, it could go, but let me, let me just give you some context in terms of a little story. Uh, there was this chap, Canadian ice skater called Wayne Gretzky. Now Wayne Gretzky wasn't just a normal ice skater. He was, one of his awards was an award for having the most awards. He's a Hall of Famer. He was, he was the man in ice skating. Yeah. He scored more goals um, than everyone else. The next two, three, and four put together. So he was a bit of a, a unicorn, as it were, in ice skating. I'll get to how this, <laughs> how does this apply to boxing a brand in a second. So what, he was interviewed, obviously, a number of times. But one of these interviews was with... Um, I can't remember the person, but a really famous interview where uh, Wayne Gretzky was asked, how are you so different? How do you score twice as many goals as the next guy in any given year? How is it possible that you can do that? What is going on in your head? What's your thought process? And he says, well, simply, I only do one thing different than everybody else. And this relates to commercial property boxing a brand. Everybody, he says, I never skate to where the puck is. Everybody skates to where the puck is. Everybody. You'll never find me there. I always skate to where the puck's going to be. And that was his advice. And that's what he does. Now, how does that relate to commercial property and boxing a brand? Where if I am looking for a vacant commercial property, I will always already know who will want to be in that property or wouldn't be interested in looking at it in the first place unless I'm on a winger and it's my patch like the one I told you about. No. <laughs> um, and how do you do that? It's like reverse engineering the whole process. 
you know, imagine you're driving by somewhere, you know, you see a new, as oh, a co-op, a new co-op food store has opened up. Oh my God, I didn't know that. It's just opened, you know? That's a three-year process for you to, you know, that's happened behind the scenes from you witnessing that in your car. So how do you reverse engineer that one and a half to three-year process behind, you know, how do you reverse engineer that back? Well, firstly, you uh, find out, you know, if I was in a town, I'd be looking at, okay, who's all the brands here? And who's the noticeable brands that are not here? Let's give them a call first because they're low-hanging fruit. Yeah, so I call them um, and find out, you know, if they want to expand in this place. But really what I do even before that, I go and speak to the brands regularly or used to. Um, and I'd ask them, you know, sit down with their acquisitions manager uh, or they're usually represented by an agent, a retained agent. So like Co-op Food, for example, they've got 14 regional acquisition managers whose full-time job is to fill a number of sites in their geographic location per year. Yeah. Now, each one of those has a retained agent. So there's two people working full-time and the acquisition manager has an assistant as well. So that's three people times the 14 geographic locations. Do you think they're keen to get sites? Absolutely. Yeah. Now that's 14 plus the assistants, 28 within the company that are full-time employees, paid serious money and a car and a phone and a X, Y, Z. And they're also paying a retained agent. And this is, you know, the retained agent's got to find, say, uh, you know, nationally, they're probably opening 100 a year and it's divided between their locations. So say it's 10 locations a year. What happens is this. If, for example, in Scotland, the chat doesn't find 10 locations, you can secure 10 locations, then that's basically um, 3.6 million of CapEx for co-op. Yeah, so 360,000 pound a shop, you know, on average. There's, there's bigger ones, there's smaller ones, but 360 on average. Um, if they don't fit 10 shops a year, the next year they'll get moved down to nine and that other one will go to a surplus somewhere, probably Southeast, no doubt. Yeah. Uh, and this is how it works. And what is it for a retained agent bagging a co-op gives them 10,000 pounds. Now that's 10,000 pounds times 10, because they've got to find 10 a year. That's a hundred grand a year. Now, if they go, if that's a hundred grand a year, that's a massive, that probably covers all their overheads for the whole office. Yeah. So if they lose one and they only bag nine, they're down to 90 K a year. So they're really, really keen to actually, you know, get locations. So what you want to do is speak to these people to find out, okay, what your CapEx for the next year is obviously, you know, full. But let's talk about a year to year and a half um, and let's find you something so that you're not stressed against the wall. We're here to help you help the acquisitions manager, help the company kind of thing. So you're at the bottom of the feeding chain. Uh, but if you're there coming from a, a point of service, being humble and, and, and really there to help them and show them the deals you've done before. And if you haven't got the deals you've done before, show them some deals that one of your friends have done before. <laughs> <laughs> and, and really what you're there to do is a year out, a year to two years, let's try and you know, fill that pipeline. Where's your gaps geographically? Where's your gaps? I'm here to help you fill that gap and I'll find a suitable property for you. Yeah? So... And then keep in touch with them every six weeks. You do, they don't want to hear from you too often, but you know, a little email now and again, just to keep in touch and then have a chat. You know, I used to have a chat once a quarter, like go and actually old school, go and see them, go and meet them for coffee. And guess what comes up? Within that year, something will fall away and they'll be panicked because they're now down from 10 to nine because something fell away. 
and they'll be reaching out to somebody that they know that might be able to help them fill a hole. Yeah. Now, how would how does that look like if you could potentially get into that position and fill a hole? Well, I'll give you a, a real life example. We bought a trading business for one and a quarter million. And, you know, so it's not everybody's first shot, probably. Uh, and it's a trading business with staff and all those kind of things. Yep. So you have to know what you're doing with a lot of things that we won't go into just now. Um, but I looked at that, it's 13,000 square foot. And I just thought, oh my God, Weatherspoons, Co-op, Costa Coffee, and, and then another, you know, something else at the end. And, um, and I never retained an agent for that. And there's a big reason why. Um, I didn't market it. I went specifically and targeted very specific tenants. I thought once they're in, they're going to be in for life. Yeah. Because remember, I'm at my phase where I'm trying to retire and, you know, I want hassle-free income. So I thought, I just want tenants that are going to be in for life. Witherspoons, when they get there, they'll never leave. And they want to buy the building there. Uh, Co-op, if they go in there, they're never going to leave because they're going to trade their socks off in this place. And Costa Coffee, you know, who knows, but probably not going to leave. Yeah. And um, so we, we managed to, you know, when we secured the leases for the tenants, which took three years, two years to secure leases and another year and a half to actually get them all in kind of thing. So it's a kind of three and a half, four year process. Yeah. Uh, but this is quite a big one. I mean, in life, you probably only need one of these um, because the rent roll is 220,000 pounds. And the one, but what the, the point I'm trying to make is the one and a quarter million purchase price went to 4 million in value. Now, I didn't use that to then re-gear it up. I'm thinking now, okay, I'm really, I'm kind of 33% geared or, or less kind of thing, you know, and, and now I'm less geared than that. Um, you know, very little gear. Now, my goal is to get to zero gear, <laughs> which is kind of weird. While I do further acquisitions, now, is that a bit of a, <laughs> there's a statement. Um, but, um, you know, you can really force massive capital appreciation with these kind of things. And indeed, that one I told you about, that was 147. That was demolished, you know, 12 affordable apartments upstairs, two commercial units downstairs, 25,000 net cost to me per shop. Uh, and the VP value is 510,000. If we get the right tenants on the right terms, and we're already speaking to, as I said, a, a national fast food operator, yeah, um, the right tenant on the right terms in there, that'll be worth 753,000 pounds because having those tenants in there on a reasonable lease, which is kind of 15 with a break at 10, 15 year lease, with maybe a break at 10 is a very strong guarantee that they will pay the rent. And because it's a very strong guarantee and they're backed by huge companies with big balance sheets, then investors are willing to take less of a return on their money because it's a safe investment. Yeah. And that's really what valuation comes down to. How safe is this investment? Therefore, you get less return. The, less, the more risky the investment, you get more return. Yeah. Yeah. And that's it in a nutshell. Um, but you can see how hugely in a deal you can force capital appreciation quite nicely. Um, and the art of getting these brands is really reverse engineering the process. Like I said, where's the pot going to be and bringing that down to Okay, let's think now, where are you opening in a year to two years? And let's talk about that so I can help you fill that. And then you can focus on uh, getting this year that you're in right now away. And I'll be your guy for year, you know, years one to two kind of thing. Tell me what you're looking for. What's your requirements? What's your property requirements? You know, exact location, 
what kind of square foot do you need? Do you need return frontage? Uh, you know, what kind of zone A or what kind of rent per square foot you want to be paying? Um, all these kind of things. Do you need an loading base? Um, what kind of consent do you need in terms of planning? Uh, all these kind of things come into a deal pie and you're looking for a property. Do they fit this deal pie? Yeah, it becomes very specific. It becomes very specific, and with the um, with that approach, like you say, it's not something that's going to happen overnight. Because these guys, apart from anything else, these guys take a bit of time, and there's a reason why they don't have that property. Is because you know they, they get the team haven't managed to find it yet, so it's not just going to be sitting there waiting for you. Yeah. So you do have to commit to it. Interestingly, though, also at the start, you mentioned about that property that you bought without knowing exactly who was going to move into it, but the key thing I took from that was you said, I 100% know that area. Mm. So I, I knew what was possible in that area. And I think that's this really important, isn't it? There's kind of two ways of doing this. One is know the area really well mm. and find that problem building, knowing that you can solve it because you've already worked out what demand is for that area. Or the complete opposite is let's go and find the tenant first, Absolutely. which is really what boxing the brand is, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I mean, really, your books and brands, especially when you're starting out, always, always, uh, what I tell people is never do a Kevin Costner. Never buy it and hope they'll come, like he built the, the field yeah. and hope to come. Always get the tenant lined up first. Um, and then at the same time, get the property, but get a, a conditional contract on that property. Never go all in until you've got the both signed up together. And really, the elixir is having an option on the property or a conditional contract. You usually can't get an option because Everybody's heard of options and they kind of said, no, I want some commitment. So the way I get commitment, I get into legals, yeah, with a price while I'm negotiating with the tenant. And I've already spoke to the tenant. I know they like this area. I know they like this size. I know they like this property, but you never know things can go wrong. Yeah. So I I always have a condition. I go into legals with a conditional contract. Now, the conditionality could be, a, a you know, who knows? It's different to every deal. It could be a conditionality that we get planning. It could be a conditionality that, um, you know, the asbestos report or this kind of report or the ground survey or this, but I always have whatever I put in there is to the sole and absolute discretion of the buyer. Now that means you've got unlimited conditionality because if it's at your sole and exclusive discretion solely, then no one can say anything against that. So if you don't want to do the deal, if the tenant back, you know, bumps out, you can withdraw from the contract. Yeah, because there's a lot of plates to spin there, isn't there? And somebody listened to this thinking about the thinking through that process. There's a potential shop to buy unit, shall we call it? Sorry, there is a seller involved in that. There's a potential tenant which we haven't quite secured yet, and I want to make sure that I make all these things work so nobody catches me out yeah. or goes direct. And so, and there's agents involved, and there's all the different stuff, and it's it's trying to make sure all those plates are spinning. And none of them drop down. It's quite challenging. It is. And you, you really have to have a certain, uh, you, you've got to be a deal doer to do that kind of thing. Like one of our, one of our guys that was on our program where we, we kind of taught this, which we don't anymore, but uh, we, we taught this, uh, was a really experienced residential guy, student accommodation guy, uh, but he's a real deal doer to heart, you know? And he took to this to like a doctor ward and he had this property, it was an ex little site. Um, and he, you know, he says, look, I, I I've got a site, it looks like a good price, but I haven't got a clue. What would you do with this? And we got up on a computer, we sketched out, you know, what should be in there, chunked up the floor plan as to, and we put, I designated four tenants, you should have four tenants in here, and this is why, kind of thing. Um, now, he managed to get 
on completion, he got two of the tenants in there signed up, cost him 1.1. And when he had two tenants signed up, it was worth 2.78. So he had 95% funding. Why? Because the bank wanted him to put something in. Of course, yeah. yeah. Um, but he could have refinanced it the next, you know, the next month and got all the money out plus more. And that, he still had two tenants to go. Yeah, but on signing, but that was not easy. Don't, don't think this is easy. That was really... You know, what is easy? It's just being on the phone and negotiating. So that took a year from agreeing to do the deal with the property. A year later, or 15 months or something, the deal got completed. Obviously, blatant COVID came in in the meantime, which didn't help. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, it shows you that somebody with no experience in commercial, but he's a deal doer. There's a massive difference there. Yeah, he's an inherent deal doer. Um, but he had no commercial experience. All he needed was a little bit of guidance how to chunk up the property and we're going to drop drop in a Domino's uh, or a Costa Coffee drive through at the front because we're right next to a roundabout. Absolutely phenomenal property. Um, but for little, they, they like to move on, you know, and they like to leapfrog Aldi and get the best site and all this kind of stuff. So it like, left this incredible property um, with massive, huge car parking, which for me struck, okay, let's get a gym, let's get a, a drive through coffee, let's get a couple of hot food things in there because it's right next to the, the, the infrastructure, the delivery infrastructure, you know, with me having the roundabout right there. So some people get really scared of that because that's lots and lots of different options and things and, and, and lots of pushing outside of a comfort zone. So I want to ask you, what is the different, what have you seen as a difference between somebody who dabbles and somebody who fully immerses himself in this asset class? Well, we've... Uh, in our, and succeeds at it. <laughs> success is in many forms because success is different to all people um, and what that means to them. Like the deal doer I talked about, he's, he's, um, you know, he's on a deal-doing mission. Yeah, I'm on a deal-doing mission. That's not for everybody. But let's talk about somebody else who's more uh, sensible and reserved in their approach. In term, I, I mean, I'm really reserved in terms of my risk profile. Well, I like doing deals. Yeah. This person has got a full time uh, business. He, he works all the time and he wanted a, a deal that is basically no hassle. Um, I said, well, we all want that, buddy. But let's, let's have a look and see if we can find one for you. So he brought seven deals uh, to the club. And in the club, we used to have this live deal clinic, uh, which we analyze the deals. You know, sometimes we have a head down planner there, the architect there, myself there, head deal analyst doing the numbers in front of them, but everything. Um, so we brought six deals. Like I, I kind of canned every deal. And I talk, but we go through why, you know, why the numbers don't work and why the deal wouldn't stack, um, why the tenant is scary as hell. That's <laughs> 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 kind of thing. Um, and then he brought one that immediately, as soon as I seen it, it was phenomenal. It was Iceland. And it was already a 10 cap, which is, you know, 10% yield. So the rent times 10 for anyone listening. Yeah. So, um, and it's Iceland on a 10 cap, which is unheard of right now. Obviously, this is just before the pandemic, where everything during the pandemic, hot food delivery, food in general, just went through the roof. Uh, and it's like seen as a safe haven, like the new gold kind of thing. So before the pandemic, we bought this. Now, he wanted to do it in a very tax efficient way, which we came up with that kind of structure for him, um, which was it works a treat. And so he bought this commercial property that had three years left on the lease or four years, something like that, three and a half years. And it was Poundland, and not Poundland, sorry, Iceland. 
uh, the food people, and it had an office as a county firm upstairs. But when we're looking at a site, and this is cash flow day one, which I love, £50,000 a year. Yeah, it cost them five, just over 500k. Um, but we managed the way we structured it, we managed to get you know 50 odd thousand pounds back from the taxman. 26,000 was a check back from the taxman, and the other uh, 19,000 pounds was cap, uh, corporation tax he didn't have to pay going forward because of the way we structured this thing, which is kind of takes the price down to 450, yep. uh, which is pretty good, which means it's kind of a loving cap, which is nuts now. When you're doing these kind of things, cash flow day one, you need to ask yourself, are the tenant going to stay there? Three and a half years left in the lease. Have you bought something at net, even at net 450, are they going to be there? So you then need to start speaking to the tenants before you buy the property, which makes people sometimes nervous, but you have to do that. You have to get boots on the ground. The easiest way to speak to the tenants, find out if they're good, is boots on the ground, go and speak to the manageress. Have, you know, say nice things about her, and she'll open her mouth like she'll tell you everything she shouldn't be telling you <laughs> in a nutshell. And then you speak to the estates department as well. Then you speak to the agent and then you start bringing this kind of, um, you know, a kind of picture of how they're trading in that location and their plans for the future. Now, the other thing you need to look at is what I call moats. Uh, you know, like in, back in the old days, castles and moats around them, moats were protection devices. Yeah, so I look for moats around an asset to see what kind of moats is there. It could be infrastructure. And in this case, it was the two big car parks in the town were right at the back door of the shop and also right across the road. So, you know, absolutely fantastic. This is in the heart of this, the kind of town. Now, also at the back, uh, at the car park, was two national brands at the back of the shop. So people's coming into the car park, and because of that, over time, shops, national brands and you know, starting to build at the back of the shop. So I'm thinking, okay, as a plan B here, we could split this unit into three shops because we can put a, a unit at the back and rent that out all day long because it, it's onto the car parking. It'll probably be a hot food delivery. And we've got two units at the front if we have to, worst case. And then the rent will probably go up to 75K, you know, just on the ground floor in that respect. But we don't want to do that because I know the chat, he hasn't got much time. He doesn't want any hassle. So all we want to do is, um, remember I said Boomerang Bob, you don't have to be the builder. Yep. This is adding value without really doing any work. It's called negotiation and extending the lease. <laughs> <laughs> and this is all about obviously finding out, remember reverse engineering, finding out if they're, if they're going to be staying before you jump in. And then after that, make sure there's a plan B and a plan C, but also find out from the tenant's point of view, um, in other similar demographic towns, what terms are they renewing leases on? Yeah, and there's very specific ways to do that. Now, when you find that information, you know what they're going to renew the lease on in your location. Yeah, and this chat could make, um, you know, just by then extending the lease, they're going to take another 10, by the looks of things, with the breaks, obviously. Um, but the 100 to quarter million pounds by extending the lease, but by doing the DD at the beginning. Yeah. 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 And that's no work. It's well, it is work, but it's just phone calls and emails and being yeah. on. There's, there's, there's quite a number of different paperwork exercises you can do in commercial that allow you to add value because the strength of the government gets changed. Yeah, absolutely. Or it's the same tenant, but the term gets extended. Yes. Yeah. Therefore, there's a guarantee of money for a longer period of time to whoever the investor is. You know? That's right. 
Buses were lucky. The COVID happened and now food has gone through the roof and they're all kind of four, five, six caps. It's nuts. It's insane, you know? Um, so as soon as he gets that renewal, um, you know, he's, he's doing okay, let's say. So Dan, I want to bring you back to that question though, because I want to, I want to also, there's, there's, there's people that go out there and just make it happen. And, and everybody has the things that hold them back, right? But some people that, maybe just kind of sit on the outside and don't quite manage to get started with this. What are some of the blocks that you've recognized that people have, whether they're self-imposed or what, what's your thoughts on that? It's, it's, always, it's always one thing. It's fear. Um, and fear is, it's, it's always fear. It's yeah. fear. Whatever it is, it comes back to that common denominator of fear. And it's usually fear because you don't know some information. This it's, and when you peel back the layers, you realize commercial is actually easier than residential because there's a lot more um, legislation against the, the tenant where in residential, the legislation is against the landlord and it's getting worse. You know, that's exacerbating big time. Um, but there's terminology in commercial that sometimes puts that, it's, it's almost people go into the attack mode. Remember the saber-toothed tiger? We've got the amygdala at the back of the brain. It goes into, I'm being attacked because like back in the days of saber tooth tiger i'm being attacked therefore you go into the rabbit in the headlight zone and yep. you're not listening there and that's because people like lawyers and those kind of people use terminology they're not you're not used to and they use that so they can charge you more <laughs> but when you get you know there's like a handful half a dozen things you need to really understand that's about it um and after you understand that it's all about strategy strategy is all so if you can get past the fear and how you get past the fear is taking action as action creates emotion, which removes the fear. And then you're open to learning. And then it's really all about hanging about the right people have actually done quite a few deals because the biggest mistake people can make is hanging about with someone who's done one deal, um, you know, that might've gone good, bad or indifferent and learning from them. You really want to try and get around like yourself. You've done tons of deals. Um, you know, people that have done lots of deals have lots of experience and will stop you putting your foot in minefields quite clearly. Yeah. So it's interesting because a lot of people would say the reason I'm not doing this, or I think I'm not going to do this is because I don't have access to money. I don't have the knowledge. Um, I don't know the right people, blah, 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 blah. But you're boiling it down. And I agree with you. You're boiling it down to the emotion of fear. It is. It's that you put all those labels on it, but it's, it's the bottom line is fear. And I remember talking about fear. This is sometimes fear manifests itself biologically because it becomes that overwhelming. And I remember one time um, in 1993 or something, no, I can't remember, early 90s anyway, or mid 90s, we were uh, starting, you know, before 97, we started our own roll up. Yeah. Yep talked about that and well just before that we started to get a team together you know like a world-class team and we're going to raise some venture capital money to really go on a kind of roll up in a bigger way kind of thing and uh, i remember on route to meeting um he was the chief executive of a listed company and then my next meeting was uh, a director of uh, standard chartered bank the next meeting was um kind of ex-Oxford McKinsey, top of McKinsey consultants. And I was inviting these people to get 1% equity onto my board. And on the way in, in the taxi in London, I literally had to tell the chap to pull over because I needed to be sick. Yeah. 
out of the taxi because of all the uncomfortable feelings I had talking to someone I thought was perhaps better than me, or I'm not worthy, or can I do this? How can I get the money? Can I do the deal? All these things that we, you know, tell ourselves and either believe and it holds us back or we do the thing despite the fear and despite the uncomfortableness uh, going on within ourselves, we do it anyway. And by doing it anyway, you get to learn, you get to do deals and you get obviously the results of them. But, you know, that's how, how bad it can get. I was physically sick, you know, going just going for a meeting. (laughs) It's insane. Um, and if I, I imagine if I had stopped me, I, you know, and I said, no, this is not for me because I'm feeling uncomfortable. Jesus Christ. Yeah. You, so owe, it's it, to, you owe it to yourself, you owe it to your family, you owe it to your, your grandkids and your great grandkids. Get uncomfortable. And what's the worst that can happen? Absolutely. What's the worst come? You know, when I got that kind of worry or that fear, I always think to myself, do you know what, in 24 hours or whatever it is, I'll be back doing whatever it was I was doing and it'll all be over <laughs> and I'll be better doing it than not. Absolutely. Yeah. You've got to try and keep perspective. But it's interesting though, isn't it? It's basically, it's not all those things about money or education or understanding. It's actually the thing holding you back the most is probably the person sitting in your own seat. It really is, isn't it? It's a guy in the mirror. Always yeah. is. Lumpy. You know, to get to the next step is always, you know, you got to move out of you know from uncomfortable to get to comfortable. You got to be you got to get comfortable being uncomfortable, which means you're always in growth. You know whether that's business, personal, uh, whatever it may be. You've got to be completely, continually growing as a human being, or you're you're stagnating. And stagnation, you know, entropy comes in. You're not happy. You're not excited about life. You're not following your passions. You can't, you've always got to be growing. I have to anyway. I love learning. I'm a student every day and uh, love hearing nuances, little things that really add a big difference, you know? Always looking for them. I'm like a course junkie. I've gone everybody's course. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and people will say, why do you go on a course? You, you've been at this for a while. I says, I'm looking for one little thing that I can apply and bring as a tool into my toolbox that on the next deal might make X, Y, or Z. Yeah, you, you understand, yeah, sometimes these, th- well, like you said earlier, one piece of information can um, save or make you tens, if not hundreds of thousands. If 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 you've got it there, you can use it. If you don't, you, it's, it's, you're not going to be able to use it. The interesting thing about people having that epiphany or finally accepting that the person sitting in their seat is the one that is in control is suddenly there's that feeling of, ah, now... I can actually control things because I am the one in control. And there's that thing about, right, okay, I don't know enough. So, yes, I'm going to go and get myself educated. Or I don't have enough money. Right, how do I find the money? Not using it as an excuse and recognizing that actually it's not the world against you. It's actually you trying to work out how to do things and how to get the best out of yourself. And that can be quite scary, but also quite liberating at the same time. Absolutely. And leverage is all. You know, strategy is all in commercial, but leverage is all in life. And, you know, if you're, if you're going into the commercial space, then, you know, always, always surround yourself with people that are doing deals. Not, and make sure they are doing deals. <laughs> Some people teach stuff that have just done one or two deals. You know, I'm talking about somebody who's been in a game 10, 20 years or whatever, done millions of pounds of deals anyway, um, that have serious experience under a belt. And whoever that may be, you know, you know, somebody asked me once, do you think I should go on this chance course? Um, 
And I said, if it was me, subject to liquidity, because never put yourself in shit, but subject to liquidity, I would go on all their courses because you never know when they're just going to say, I don't want to do that anymore because I'm too busy. Yeah. And this person went on a course and said it was fantastic. It wasn't my course. It was somebody else's. I was yep. recommending. I said, it's not about the course. It's about, I know that chap has done millions of pounds of deals. And the other person talked about has done millions of pounds of deals. Um, why wouldn't you want to learn from that? And shorten the time, save money, get, get a result in a collapsed time frame. Why wouldn't you want that? Yeah. yeah. And as you say, you never know that that option may not be there very soon. Yeah. You know, that, that they stop doing that or they, they format it in a different... I mean, we were talking about that earlier on, Dan. You, you, you were, with your deal club, um, quite focused on helping getting people that were getting started or, or starting to scale up in the commercial. But now you've moved slightly. And I just want to move on to really what you are doing now. You're, you're working more with investors, really. Yes, still an education element, of course. Yeah. But really helping people that... Um, have that situation where they're doing well in their own business, but don't necessarily have the time and want to be able to do commercial. And let's just talk about that for a little bit, what you've moved on to now. Yeah, well, really it came from, I suppose, mid 2020 when a lot of people just said, I, I you know, love the strategies, love being in the club, love the education, but I really, I either fear, I, I'm not just, I'm not, not going to do this on my own or number two, I just don't have the time. And really the time thing was the most thing. People just didn't have the time. Busy professionals, business owners, um, and they're sitting on this. They've had the, this, the, you know, the foresight to think, "I'll take back my pension under my own control." And if it if it, if it goes well, it goes bad. It's up to me, uh, not to somebody I don't know that's taking fees, no matter how it does. So they've done that, but they're then sitting on three hundred, four hundred, five hundred thousand pounds in their pension, and they then don't know what to do with it. They don't know who to put it with. Uh, what to put it in, how to diversify their asset allocation to decrease risk and increase IRR. And so they asked me to, um, is there any way we can piggyback? When we talked about the crowdfunding platform that we set up and we did that raise and completed the deal in November. But going forward, we're going to be helping those kind of people, um, you know, busy professionals, business owners with no time. We're going to help them grow their, their pension or their capital, well, whether that be in a pension, whether that be in a company or personal money. We're going to help that, them grow by investing in uh, the best of British businesses and commercial real estate. And we are targeting commercial uh, businesses that own their own commercial real estate. Target them just now. Businesses have been around for decades that are very, very profitable. And um, you know we're going to facilitate bringing those two together and allowing our club members to invest in there. Now, if they are investors, we'll never leave any man behind because as an investor, if you've got a deal and you need help on your deal, we'll help you in your deal. But we're not kind of selling education as such. The education's free by being an investor. All the programs we've done in the past, like the Art of Boxing or Brand, the Commercial Property Accelerator, um, the Planning Academy, the Legal Academy, the Raising Money Academy, they're now all free going forward from whenever we open to people that are investors. Um, so that's what we're doing. We're, we're really focused on that as uh, it's going great. And I've never been so alive and uh, it's fantastic, mate. I'm, I'm, having a, I'm having a ball. Currently the club's closed, but you know when it opens, there'll be an application form and a kind of waiting list um, because it's not for everybody, it's for investors. So even if you kind of want the programs, 
and you know if you're not an investor <laughs> you know it's, it's kind of an investor's club <laughs> kind yeah. of thing so it's for investors and the education is free uh, and you've spent a lot of time and money to be able to get yourself in a position where you can offer that it's not something you can just set up and do it's, oh, it's, it's, it's a lot of rules around that Absolutely. The compliance around raising money from multiple investors into a deal on a passive basis and debt is one thing. Doing an equity is a different thing altogether. Yeah. And, um, you know, developing that into the crowdfunding website. I mean, we were trying to buy a crowdfunding website. Um, and I thought, because that's, that's what I do, I buy businesses. Um, so I thought, all right, I'll just buy one. How hard can that be? And uh, we negotiated with three. I was scared because the financials did not look pretty at all. I just didn't fancy taking on that monthly burn. So I then thought, how hard could it be? I'll develop my own. And uh, my goodness, that was that was a rude awakening. But we got there, you know, and it's uh, it's been great. And now it's an asset to use going forward uh, to help people that have capital to grow their capital in a diversified way. You know, so imagine imagine this. Imagine being able to invest in a business that was set up just after the First World War, that is in engineering, has no debt, does a, a two million pound of profit, and is third generation, and distributes globally. So imagine being able to invest in that, and in the other spectrum, investing in something completely different, which follows Ray Dalio's principles approach of the holy grail of uncorrelated assets. You only need 15, he says, the more uncorrelated they are, the less risky they are, the more IRR because it's going to be less mistakes. So I might be able to invest in that and then invest in splitting the commercial from that and then investing in that commercial. And then imagine being able to invest on the day they go public before they go public. And there's no debt. And your money is only going to be used for the next acquisition. So it's enhancing, it's scaling it's growing, it's money there, massively grow the business with another acquisition. So it's a combination of that story you went through at the start of going through those businesses and trade, building up your trading business whilst building up the portfolio with it. And now you've got this to a point where you can bring all that together and offer others the opportunity to, to jump on the tail. Absolutely. And, but and, this time without debt. Yeah. Which is massive. Yeah. We are in control, not the banks. We are the banks. The investors are the banks in this game. And it's really anti-establishment, anti-big banks, anti-bankers greed. And why do the little guys only get a 2.6 on average multiple of their profits in the UK when the big boys are getting 15 to 30 times? You know, it's something called liquidity. In small businesses, there's no liquidity. So we can group a lot of these businesses together that have no debt or seriously profitable, been around for decades. Then all of a sudden we create a critical mass and then take them public and then we've got huge liquidity. Okay, so Dan, let's um, just finish off on that topic. Can you give us um, just some quick details of where people can find out about that? Uh, well, if you pop along to taylorcapital.co.uk and... Um, you know, it's the, the website hasn't been revamped for this new approach yet, but it's all happening in the background. And probably, what is this? This is February. Probably by the end of March, we'll be, we'll be good to go. Great. So we'll pop that in the show notes. It's a place to be able to go and keep a, keep a track of what's going on. And I want to ask you one last question, though. For those listeners that don't have 
um, finance sitting behind them, does that mean it's game over or can they still get into commercial? And if they can, what sort of tips would you give people that are maybe starting out and don't have necessarily um, a pot of money to be able to go and do that? Well, I think if you're starting out in commercial, uh, you know, there's there's a myriad of strategies and you'll, you'll kind of be gravitate towards one, um, you know, the, just naturally. But one I always love is cash flow day one. You know, it's just, you know, start small, cash flow day one uh, with a way to add value. Yeah. And uh, for, for me, like one of the guys in the club bought in the Iceland, yes, it was half a million, net 450 after the tax efficiencies. But, you know, you don't have to go as big as that. There's people in the club, um, somebody else was like that, too busy. He said, I want something hassle-free, no developing, no refurbishing, none of that nonsense. I want to just do some lease work. And it cost uh, about 200000 And after a little bit of lease work, we got it to be worth 300000 So that is easy to get an investor on board. Why? Because there's a good property in a good location with a reasonable tenant, just a very short lease. So if you do your DED up front, you can extend that lease really, really simply because you find out if you can before you buy. Okay, so you're saying find find something a bit smaller, find yourself an investor if money's a problem, it doesn't have to be your money, Absolutely. and find yourself something that's going to give you cash flow straight away, but also the option to tweak, to add value, basically, whether that's through lease, whether that's through asset management, as they like to say, or whether it's through some vacant element that you can find a tenant. But basically, find an investor, find a deal, of course. Don't worry about having to fund it yourself. You can find yourself an investor, but find someone that's got that upside. Apart from anything else, you can leverage that for later, can't you? Yeah, but also always, always meet the tenant before you do the deal. Like the the one I just told you about was uh, somebody in the club and it was an auction, you know, so you don't know what's going to happen at the auction. He was the only one in the auction that met the tenant. He was the only one in the auction that met the tenant three times because I kept sending him back. I said, you've never got this information. you never got this information. And then he was the only one in the auction that knew he could get a, a new 15-year lease. And there was only nine months left. So he had insider knowledge. Why? Because apathy. Nobody can be bothered to get on your bike. <laughs> yeah. Get on your bike, get uncomfortable, get the deal done. <laughs> yeah. Get your feet on, get your feet out there and start walking and talking. Yeah. Absolutely. Brilliant, Dan. Thank you. It's been great to talk to you. Um, really appreciate that, that there are so many different elements and areas we could go and talk about for hours. The, the discussion about the brand, boxing a brand is really interesting. And I think that's a strategy that some listeners should be able to really latch on to that fact that go and find the tenant first, cut down the risk and then go and look for the properties. It's, it's been really good talking to you. Thanks for joining us, Dan. Mm-hmm.